Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Good day, and thanks for dropping on by for episode 778 with Russ Poldrack. Russ works at Stanford doing some cutting-edge research on our brains and habits so we can benefit from his wisdom to learn, one, how to make good habits stick, two, how to strengthen our brains against bad habits, and three, why habits never really go away and what we should do instead. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or some pieces that we reference here, pay us a visit at awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP778. And if you're at awesomeatyourjob.com, check out some goodies such as the Gold Nugget email list, which lets you see the summary actionable tidbits that Russ shared emailed right to your inbox when each new guest goes live, as well as unlocking the whole archive of all 778 of these summary write-ups. Those are called the Gold Nuggets, and you can find them at awesomeatyourjob.com. Now, here's Russell's story. Russell A. Poldrack is a psychologist and neuroscientist. He is the Albert Ray Lang Professor of Psychology at Stanford University. He's also the Associate Director of Stanford Data Science, a member of the Stanford Neuroscience Institute, and Director of the Stanford Center for Reproducible Neuroscience, and the SDS Center for Open and Reproducible Science. Prior to his appointment at Stanford in 2014, he held faculty positions at Harvard Medical School, UCLA, and the University of Texas at Austin. He's the author of The New Mind Readers, What Neuroimaging Can and Cannot Reveal About Our Thoughts, and Hard to Break, Why Our Brains Make Habits Stick. He lives in San Francisco. Big thanks to Russ for sharing his wisdom with us, and big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. One sponsor to check out is LinkedIn Jobs. Did you know that you can post a job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome? And with a fresh year, perhaps you're like many small business owners looking for some fresh insight and talent to make 2024 extra amazing. Well, LinkedIn Jobs has created tremendous tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and free. I love how they make it so easy with their promotion and selection tools. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. No, no. No, LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. Here's some fun facts. 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. And small businesses rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome. That's linkedin.com slash B-E-A-W-E-S-O-M-E, as in you are being awesome, be awesome, to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. Now, here's Russ. Russ, welcome to How to Be Awesome at Your Job. Thanks. It's great to be here. I'm so excited to talk about habits and brain stuff, some of my favorite bits. But first, I'm a little curious to hear about your new practice, the hour of whatever in your lab. What's the story here and what has resulted from it? Yeah, so the hour of whatever uh, grew out of people's, I think, and especially in the last couple of years, just feeling like we needed time to sort of connect without an agenda, no particular topics or anything. We just come together and talk about whatever we want to talk about. A couple weeks ago, it was about the relative merits of raccoons. Okay. Pros and cons. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes it's been slightly more academic topics, like what happens at an academic conference. So it's a, you know, it's a chance for people to just ask any questions they want to ask. And it's been super fun. You know, I think we're all struggling to kind of 
come back into what used to be our normal social life and social being. And, and this is meant to kind of be an opportunity to try to help re-engage those parts of our brain that might have withered a bit. That's fun. And and so does someone come in with a topic or is it just sort of like, hey, here we are? <laughs> People do come in with topics, but it's also a random walk at times as well. All right. Well, I'm excited to talk about your book, Hard to Break, Why Our Brains Make Habits Stick. And maybe before we go into the, the depths of the book, could you kick us off with some of your most surprising and fascinating discoveries you've come about in your research here? Yeah. So we've been interested for a long time in how it is that so many different cognitive functions can be sort of crammed into the little two or three pounds of brain that sit in our head. And you know, one of the ideas that, that's been around for a long time and that has driven a lot of the work that I've done across my career is tr trying to understand how you know, like the brain has different systems to solve related versions of different problems. And so one of those is actually directly related to habit. So if you think about like what are the, the things that we learn as we go through the world, I like to use driving a car as an example. So when you drive to work, you don't have to think back and remember, oh, which pedal do I press to stop the car or to go? And that's when we think about habits. Those are often what we think about are the different behaviors that we have, the different knowledge that we build up through our experience in the world. That's very different than like the knowledge of which particular parking spot you parked your car in this morning, right? That changes every day and you really have to use a different type of memory system in your brain to uh, to be able to to go back and remember where you parked. And a lot of the work that we've done is try to figure out, you know, how do these different brain systems either work together or even compete with one another? So one of the big early findings that we had was showing that these two systems, the system that kind of develops habits and the system that helps us create these conscious memories of the past, like where we parked our car this morning, don't just seem to be kind of working off on their own, but they actually seem to be competing with one another such that when activity in one of those sets of brain areas goes up, activity in the other set goes down, they seem to be kind of pushing and pulling against one another. And so it, it really tells us that the brain is this big dynamical system that's a lot of different parts that are working at the same time. And sometimes they work together and sometimes they work at cross purposes. And so then in practice, does that mean if I am exerting some mental energy in one direction, I would expect deficits elsewhere? In general, that's going to be true. Yeah. And we've, we've showed it's a work that to the degree that you're engaged in, for example, multitasking, trying to do multiple things at once, that that has a, a bigger impact on the brain systems that are involved in generating those conscious memories of the past and less impact on the, the brain systems that are involved in developing habits. The brain has limited bandwidth. And so it's almost necessarily the case that if you're focusing on one thing, it's going to be at the expense of, of other types of information processing, and that's going to have an impact on how you do and what you remember. Okay. Well, now could you share the big idea or, or core thesis behind the book, Hard to Break? Yeah, so I'd say that the big idea is really like why is why are habits so hard to change? You know, we all have habits we'd like to change. We all know how hard our behavior is to change. And I think the big idea behind the book is that behavior change is hard for a reason. And that is that, you know, habits in general are a really good thing. In fact, they're essential for us to 
behave effectively in the world. So if you think about what would happen if we didn't have habits, we would be deliberating about every small act that we make, which where exactly should I put my foot when I take the next step? Which of these 10 different loaves of bread at the grocery store should I buy? And obviously, some people still do deliberate about those things uh, excessively. But habits basically allow us to offload a lot of the uninteresting stuff to what you might think of as our brain's autopilot. When the world stays the same all the time, when we're driving the same car every day, we don't need to worry about where the pedals are changing and on all those little details. The habit systems in our brain basically allow us to not have to think about that stuff. There's a great quote from the psychologist William James. He actually wrote this in 1890, and it's one of the most highlighted bits on Kindle in my book, which is, here's the quote, the great thing then in all education is to make our nervous system our ally instead of our enemy. For this, we must make automatic and habitual as early as possible, as many useful actions as we can. Okay. So it really highlights the fact that, you know, in general, habits are really important to us. And you, you wouldn't want them to just go away easily until they become habits that are annoying. And then, uh, then that the stickiness of habits becomes like a real challenge. All right. Well, so given this, what do you recommend are, are some of the, the best practices for establishing new habits and then conversely for breaking ones we don't want? Yeah. So I think when it comes to establishing new habits, the real key is consistency. And in some sense, like setting up a a schedule. So let's assume that we're talking about a a habit that isn't something one necessarily loves to do, like going to the gym. One of the things to think about is to to make it as easy as possible for yourself to engage in the thing. And and to one way to think about it is don't let yourself decide whether you're going to do that thing or not today, but really have it be just part of a part of a schedule. So for example, if you If you wake up every day and say, oh, should I go to the gym today? It's going to be a lot easier to say no than if you just decide I'm going to go to the gym on Monday, Wednesday and Friday at the same time of day. And I'm going to fix that into my larger routine. And so the idea is sort of taking away the a little bit of your ability to decide not to do the thing. Okay, like the burn the boats notion, like, oh, we can't retreat because the boats are gone. Exactly. Right. (laughs) Or other sort of commitment devices or. Yeah. 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 Or restraints. Yeah. Okay. Another interesting idea has come from uh, Katie Milkman and Angela Duckworth and others. This idea called temptation bundling, where basically the idea is like you, you give yourself a small reward in exchange for doing something that you don't want to necessarily do, at least until that thing, you know, can become uh, more habitual. So. You might, for example, say, every time I go to the gym, I'm going to allow myself to have a little bit of chocolate. Angela Duckworth and her colleagues did some research where they gave people free audiobooks to listen to while they were on the treadmill. And that actually showed that it increased people's willingness to exercise, even something audiobooks are, are fun. They're not, they're not like eating chocolate, right? But even, even the audiobooks were enough to, to sort of get people to, to be more likely to keep going to the gym. All right. And if we're trying to disentangle or get away from things you want to stop doing, what do you recommend there? Yeah. So I think, you know, one of the really important things is understanding what are the, what are the things that trigger the habit? You know, we know that one of the things that makes a habit a habit is that it's triggered by cues in in the world, right? You know, that one of these, for example, 
you walk into a bar, you're an ex-smoker, the smell of smoke or the other smells of the bar make you really want to have a cigarette, right? And almost every habit has something that can trigger it. And so the first important thing is to like try to understand what the triggers are for you. They're going to probably be different for every person. What are, what are the triggers for you for the particular habit you're trying to change? And then one, you know, can you get rid of those triggers? And so some, you know, can you kind of design your life to not encounter those things? Sometimes we can, sometimes we can't. If you can, then the more you can do to, to avoid the triggers, the better off you are. Because one of the other things that's so hard about habits is once they get triggered, they're really hard to stop. It's much easier to prevent them from ever have, you know, to prevent you from ever being triggered to do the thing than it is to stop yourself once, uh, once it's been triggered. Now, there are some things that we know that can strengthen one's ability to, to stop. And this, you know, we know that the prefrontal cortex is kind of the brain's central executive to the degree that humans can exert any control over what they do. It's the prefrontal cortex that allows us to do that. And there are things that we know that can, you know, make the prefrontal cortex work uh, better or worse. We know that stress is a really strong negative impact on the, the prefrontal cortex and, and one's ability to, to exert control. Um, lack of sleep is also a, a big way to cause the prefrontal cortex to not function well. So working on stress reduction, improving sleep, uh, exercise, those are all things that we know can help improve prefrontal cortex function. People think that, you know, this stuff is all about willpower, but willpower is in general pretty weak. And once the habit takes off, it's very hard for us to, to actually stop it. So one other thing that seems to work, there's evidence showing, you know, in a number of different domains that this can help people change their behavior, is this idea of planning for what's going to happen when the situation arises. So psychologists call this an implementation intention. What are you, when it comes time to, you know, to have to stop yourself from doing the thing, what are you going to do? And so instead of saying, oh, I'm not going to smoke, uh, say, well, you know, when I, when I go to the bar and my friend offers me a cigarette, this is exactly what I'm going to do in order to prevent myself from, from smoking at that point. It doesn't always work, but there, you know, there's evidence that, that these types of, of uh, planning interventions do seem to help people change their behavior. It's so funny. And my, my creative brain just runs wild with, with that. And because there can be an infinite number of responses. I'm thinking of like dramatic things like you can break it in two and say, no, I have conquered nicotine forever. Okay, that's dramatic. Right. Or you say, oh, no, thanks. Or it's sort of like you have your your script or you're going to, I don't know what the alternatives to smoking are in terms of, I guess there's there's other yep. nicotine delivery yep. mechanisms. And there's like, is it a fuse? I don't know what it's called. It's like a vape that's not nicotine or something. Right. But right. so there, there could be any number of, of replacements. And in fact, I, I was intrigued. You have a, a chapter entitled, I forgot that I was a smoker in your table of right. contents. I wanted to, <laughs> I, I wanted to dig into that because, because mm -hmm. we talk about those triggers, it's kind of like some triggers are internal, like, Hmm, when I'm bored, which just sort of happens inside all right. of us daily, I pick up my smartphone and see what's going on on social media or, or, or whatever, or it, maybe it is, uh, or food or drink type situation. So when that happens and the triggers are internal and, and unavoidable, tell us what are some of the best practices? There's there's strengthening of the prefrontal cortex. There's having that Im implementation intention. 
implementation intention. Yeah. I mean, another thing. So I talk a bit in the book about a bit of what we've learned from research on um, Tourette syndrome. So Tourette syndrome, you know, is this disorder mostly in children where the kids have tics, right? And these could be, you know, vocal tics. They could be facial movement. Most kids grow out of them. Some people have them into their adulthood. And there's, there's a bunch of work looking at what's called habit replacement, where the idea is like, you know, if you have something that, for example, a tick, and, the, you know, these ticks, the, like the person often gets a really strong urge to like do the thing, especially if they're trying to prevent themselves from doing it. And finally, it, it comes out. So the idea is to have some other thing that you do uh, as a replacement. And that could be, you know, in the context of ticks, it's often like a different movement. But you can imagine, you know, finding, for example, if you usually drink alcohol and you want to sort of, you know, uh, not drink, right, finding things that are as close as possible to the thing that that you would want to drink, but that that don't have alcohol, or as you were talking about, nicotine replacement, because those sort of things can help break the link between all of the cues, like the taste of the thing, and the the response that you get from, for example, the alcohol. Mm-hmm. Okay, and so that person who forgot that uh, they were a smoker, how'd that yeah. go down? <laughs> so this is a, it's a really interesting case. There's actually a number of cases where this was an individual who had a stroke. Mm. And it damaged a particular part of the brain that seems to be really important for storing these types of, I don't know if you want to think of them as cravings, but sort of like associations that we have with stuff that, that we want. And yeah, he apparently, you know, woke up after the stroke and suddenly didn't, you know, after years of waking up every morning and, and, you know, having to have a cigarette first thing, woke up after the stroke, didn't feel the need for a cigarette anymore. And when he was asked to describe what happened, he basically said, yeah, I just forgot I was a smoker. Okay. Well, well so yeah, that has fascinating implications, I'm sure, in, in, in your research associated with brain pathways and, and, and what's going on there. Indeed. So, okay. And then you've got a particular recipe for stickiness in terms of getting habits to stick. What are the components of this recipe? Yeah. So the brain has brought together several different things that ultimately result in the fact that habits are really sticky. So the the first one is that you know when a when a habit is developed, it never really goes away. As much as we might try to to make it go away, what we've learned from a lot of uh, research, especially research you know looking at like rats learning habits, but we think it's true in all organisms, is that when we have a habit and we want to try to get rid of that habit, what we have to do is basically push down the habit and learn a new behavior in its place. And as much as we might think that that old habit is gone, it's always lurking there in the background. And if we get stressed out or if the context changes, it's likely to come back. That's why we think habits are so likely to come back even you know many years later. There's also this thing that happens as something becomes a habit, our brain moves it from initially relying on sort of the parts of the brain that make plans and plan out what we're going to do to the parts of the brain that are more involved in just doing actions. So it's almost like it becomes more of a hardwired action than, uh, than something that we're thinking about. And another part of that is that we start to do lots of things together. We call this chunking in neuroscience, where initially, you know, we would have to plan out what are all the different actions we were going to do, say, to go to the store and go get some ice cream. And all of that becomes, in some sense, one bigger action. And so it's 
it's easy for us to not be thinking in the middle what we're doing. It's almost like if the, the thing starts and it just kind of runs until it's done. And then the other thing that starts to happen is that our attention starts to get driven by the things in the world that are related to the habit. So, for example, if you have a habit of eating ice cream, you might be particularly drawn to you know any kind of image of ice cream, anything in a store that that has those features that you're that you kind of associate with ice cream. And so, all those things come together to make it both really hard to get rid of a habit. And also really hard to prevent it from from being turned on or to stop it once it's going. Mm-hmm. Well, so given all of the, the the knowledge and concepts and principles, can you share with us a few of the coolest stories you've encountered of folks who have have put these into practice and done a fine job of creating habits or breaking habits that previously were eluding them? So I think one really inspiring example for me is a, a friend of mine who for a number of years, had a significant drug habit, narcotics, and was able to, you know, ultimately hit bottom and was able to to come back. And I think, you know, one of the the really impressive things that they used was really working on this protecting the prefrontal cortex by, you know, doing meditation and really trying to to obtain a respite from all of the the urges of the world and the and the voices that we hear, and I think that that's uh, the ability to kind of you know get some sort of mental clarity and really understand yourself like that really helps to think about like how will I respond when the cues come up. All right. Well, well, tell me anything else you want to make sure to mention before we shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things. Uh, no, I think we've hit uh, all the high points. Okay. Well, can you share a favorite quote? Something you find inspiring? Yeah. This is from uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson. Do the thing you fear and death of fear is certain. All right. Nice. And how about a favorite study or experiment or bit of research? One of the things that I always like to talk about, and it kind of blows people's minds, and they don't believe me, I think, quite usually when I tell them about it. There's a, a large body of work in psychology now on what are called flashbulb memories, which are these memories that we all have where, you know, something happens I have one, you know, I was in college when the Space Shuttle Challenger exploded, right? And I have this crystal clear memory of like walking into my dorm room after class and somebody telling me, oh, hey, the the Space Shuttle exploded. And we all think that those are, they're called flashbulb memories because for many years, people thought that they were this perfect recording of exactly what happened. It turns out that many people get the details of these memories completely wrong. There's been a number of studies now that have looked at people's memories. The first one was actually for the Challenger explosion, where they went back. They had people like the day after the explosion say, where were you yesterday when you heard about the Challenger explosion? And then they go back months later and say, where were you? And the people often give details that are just totally wrong, but they're still so confident in mm. those memories. And it really highlights the fact that memory is not like a tape recorder, right? Memory is a is our brain reconstructing a story about the past. Intriguing. And could you share a favorite book? Yeah. One that, that I think is really fun is uh, it's called How to Do Nothing by Jenny O'Dell, who's an artist and writer. And it lays out this idea of what she calls the attention economy. It's like the whole world is just sort of clamoring to to grab our attention. And we start to think of like every moment as an opportunity to spend attention on something. 
And she makes this, I think, a compelling argument that we need to take back control of our attention, right? And and that she refers to it as like a revolutionary act and sort of choose to experience the world in, in a way that, you know, allows us to connect with other people, connect with the world around us. I think about when I was a kid, my mom would make me go to the fabric store with her. And this was before devices or anything. And so I would, you know, my brother and I would go to the fabric store with her. and We just sit there for 20, 30 minutes with absolutely nothing to do. And that the ability to tolerate boredom, like I could never go do that now. Right. But the, the, I think that our, our ability to, to turn off our, our responses to the world. And I think mindful is a good word for it to be, to be more mindful about how it is that we're engaging with the world, I think is a really important thing. Mm-hmm. And a favorite tool, something you used to be awesome at your job. Yeah. So the one piece of software that I use that I think is really useful is, and there's a lot of things that do this, but I use this thing called Todoist, which is a really lightweight but effective to-do list manager. I mean, I like to try to keep my inbox, my email inbox down to one page, right? So I can I can at least see everything that I immediately have to worry about. And that, I'm sure you get as many emails as I do. You know how hard it is to keep everything down to about, I think my page is like 40 emails. And so having a really good to-do list manager that integrates well with your email system uh, is really important. And so I, I find that probably my most important, like small tool that, that helps me stay on track. All right. And how about yourself when it comes to habits? Any any favorite ones that have really served you well over the years? I try to walk a lot. And I think that that's a, that's a good thing to do, both because you can't be doing other things. Well, you can, but uh, but I try not to. And I think habits trying to think about habits of mind, right? Because, you know, obviously we, all, we also, we often think about our habits as being actions that we take in the world, but I think habits of mind are, are just as, uh, just as important. And I think being able to find the sweet spot where you're, where you're almost perfectionist, but not quite, because I think perfectionism is, at least in terms of productivity is, you know, just a killer, right? I know so many people who are much more brilliant than, than I will ever be at people who wanted to go into science, but basically their perfectionism prevented them from ever getting anywhere because they, they were never happy enough with what they had done. And so I think finding that like sweet spot between like good enough and perfect is uh, it's a really hard thing to learn how to do. But I think at least for me, I feel like that's been a, a key to, to success. Okay. And is there a key nugget you share that really seems to connect and resonate with folks? It's been underlined a bunch in the book or you hear people quote it back to you often? I think the important nugget is that habits are sticky for a reason, right? They're sticky because in general, we we want them to be. We don't want to do a handstand and have our, our ability to see completely rewired, right? And I, I think related to that, part of one of the points that I have to try to make about the book is that it should be a message for people to to not uh, beat themselves up when they can't change their behavior, right? Their brains were built to do exactly this. And especially, you know, our brains didn't evolve in a world with, 64 ounce sugary drinks and potato chips and drugs of the sort that one can buy either at the the store or on the street. And so, you know, our brains are really badly overpowered by the world that we live in now. And so I think that finding some compassion for oneself around these things, I I think is really important. Mm -hmm. And if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them? I'm on Twitter at, at Russ Poltrack. That's probably the best place. All right. And you have a final challenge or call to action for folks looking to be awesome at their jobs? I think it kind of goes back actually to the the quote, which is to just find as many chances as you can to do something that you're afraid of. All right. Russ, thank you. This has been a treat. I wish you much luck and, and fun, good habits. 
Many thanks. It's been great fun. I'm making some fun connections here about what Russ had to say with regard to if we strengthen our brain's response to stress, then we are better able to exert control. And our veering levels of being able to exert control often have to do with our stress levels. And so if we have poor sleep or nutrition, then we are experiencing more stress and less able to exert control, which reminds me of the conversation we had with Dr. Amishi Jha on episode 734 about how to train your mind to focus and handle distractions better when she said that our brains are more hijackable than before, but in a laboratory measured setting, our attention spans have not really shifted. And I think are, we're more hijackable, one, because there's more, you know, devices and smartphones and all that stuff. But two, I think that sleep deprivation is a biggie, and I believe it's getting worse, if, if memory serves, from what I'm uh, reading and hearing, as well as the the bragging of, of Netflix and how their main competitor is sleeping and how they're winning. So I just have been chewing on that, recommend maybe you do the same. If you find yourself having a hard time focusing, maybe there's a link with low sleep. I was chatting with somebody at a party. He said, oh, he usually does about five hours of sleep a night. And he says he gets by just fine. And that may well be true. He could be blessed genetically. Or there could be negative effects that we're not even consciously aware of that show up in our low ability to focus and elsewhere. Anyway, good stuff from Russ. We heard it from the researcher himself. The stress impacting our ability to exert control maybe sleep deprivation or other stress-related factors are behind focus difficulties. Anyway, the show notes, the transcript, and the links to items that we've referenced are over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP778. Hope to catch you next time. And peace. Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. You can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation. You can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered. Second, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically. You can subscribe by telling Siri and several other smartphones and speakers, subscribe to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast or by tapping subscribe in your podcast player of choice. If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. Hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job.